Hello and welcome to Not So Molly Mormon Podcast. Hello and welcome back. This is Sarah. And this is Katie. Welcome everyone. Thanks for listening, for being here as usual. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed the last episode. I don't know if you can really say enjoyed, but you feel more inspired to fight the good fight and also just, yeah, feeling feeling more rage towards Mormonism <laughs> and racism within it because we do. Um, so much rage. Oh, my God. So before we get into our episode, we have just a couple of announcements. Um, we have a new patron, Brianna. Hello, Brianna. Brianna. Welcome. Hello. Also, I still don't know. I mean, Katie thinks it's Brianna. I'm saying maybe Brianna. I don't know. Just going <laughs> to yeah. throw it out there. You can correct us. But either way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> either way, thank you and welcome. Um, let's see. What was my other announcement? Um. Oh, wait. Oh, yeah. So I wanted to update you on we did uh, follow through and we donated to two different charities. We used the um, patrons amazing donations. So thank you. We donated to Black Lives Matter and Reclaim the Block, which I think as of now, as we're recording, which is June uh, 10th, 2020, I think Reclaim the Block has said that they have enough donations as of now. I don't know. You can double check that. But anyways, that's what we did. So thank you. Yes. And and again, a big shout out to our patrons because that was, you know, because of you guys, that was um, just obviously as much as not so Molly Mormon podcast donation as it is yours. So thank you. Thank you um, for that. So yeah, for sure. And one other thing I wanted to say, like kind of a correction and and of sorts, I think in our episode where we were talking about racism, I, I guess I, what's the word I'm looking for? I alluded to the fact and kind of said that Joseph Smith was less racist than like the other prophets. And it's been pointed out to me since that there's no such thing as like being less racist. Racism is racism. And so I wanted to apologize. And that was wrong. Joseph Smith, is a racist and that's it. <laughs> so. Yeah. And I'm sure I, I mean, I can't really remember, but I'm sure I echoed the same thing. So I also want to apologize if I did that, which is probably the case. Um, then yeah, as Katie mentioned, it's racist is racist. And also we just want to say thank you for the listener who pointed that out, because as always we want to learn and grow and make these corrections and changes. So um, we appreciate that. And we definitely we'll use that going forward and make sure that we don't say less than or more than because racism is just racism. So. Yep. Okay. So do you have anything else? Any other announcements, Sarah? I think that's it. You guys. All right, cool. Well, chatty Kathy this week. I apologize. (laughs) Yeah. We have an amazing guest this week. Welcome to Lynn. Hi, Lynn. Lynn. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) So, listeners, I have known Lynn for a very long time. I think we even went to junior high school together. Too Canyon View. Canyon View. Oh my god. God, I haven't said those words in so long, and as I did, a chill went up my spine, and I feel like I've been like licked on the back by like some swamp monster. (laughs) 
Canyon View. And Lynn, uh, we're just so excited to have her on the show. She's going to tell us her story, her experience of being in Mormonism. She obviously, like we just said, she grew up in Utah County. And we want to hear, and oh, and she went through the temple and everything like that, too. Oh, so, boy. yes. Ooh, I'm so excited about that part, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Lynn, the floor is yours. Tell us wherever you ah. want to start and whatever whatever you want to say. Let's give ah. the spotlight, Lynn. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, yeah, it feels a little awkward because um, I'm just mostly going to be talking about myself and that feels rather egotistical. But like my hope is that um, like the reason you guys started this podcast, which has been hugely helpful for I think a lot of ex-Mormons or people who are going through a faith crisis, I'm hoping that my experience can help people feel perhaps like a little less alone in their mm-hmm. journey. And also let people know that, um, like, there is community for you if you're not finding it in Mormonism. And hopefully this experiences in the story of mine that I share will help people kind of understand what it is like to be a very active Mormon when you are a person of color, Um, although a very privileged person of color. So to introduce myself, my name is Lynn. I am a mixed-race Korean Caucasian. So my father is white, white, white American, and my mother is a first-generation immigrant from South Korea. Um, And one thing that is kind of interesting um, and is interesting mostly for the mixed-race perspective is that um, I know the story of how my parents met very well. And I had to learn that from a young age because people were so perplexed when they saw me because they just couldn't fathom that this that that two people of a different race would meet and have a child together I think in a lot of ways Um, yeah it's really interesting so so I have learned and memorized when I was very young to say oh yes my father went and served an LDS mission in South Korea then he would go back every summer afterwards to teach English as a summer job so he could afford to play pay for his schooling at BYU And while he went back one of those summers to teach English, he would teach English at companies. He taught English at the company that my mother worked. And my mom met him through there. He was teaching her and the rest of the people in that company English. And um, the story is actually kind of cute. So I guess my mom, she's, people have a, um, an image in their mind of what a of what like an Asian woman is, and they usually think very pretty, very quiet, very demure. And my mother is not that <laughs> at all. <laughs> so she would like kind of like go and kick the door down and be like, "Oh, Mr. Phillips, like when are you gonna ask me out on a date?" Like that was what my <laughs> mom was like. And my dad would be like, "Oh, you know, maybe one day." And so one day he actually did call her at how at home where she lived with like. Uh, my grandma and her siblings. He was like, oh, Miss Cho, I would like to see if you'd like to go out on a date with me. And she was like, uh, I need to ask my mom if that's okay. <laughs> because Really? Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, in, in Korea, like, they have a lot of experience with Christianity, and they have a lot of experience with Americans in particular because of the Korean War. And so the stereotype of American men was usually they're in the military and they're going to take advantage of Korean women, right? They'll like have sex with you and they'll say you're beautiful and that they're going to take you back to America and marry you and then they just drop you. (laughs) Or if they do, you're taking you away from Korea. And so there's, it's, 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 it's complicated. 
And so she was like, I have to ask my mom. And my mom was, oh, and my grandma was like, yeah, have him come over and meet us first. And so he, their first date, like my dad goes and picks her up. He meets the family. He speaks Korean, which is rare for Americans at the time because he had served that LDS mission where he learned to speak Korean. And so they kind of trusted him a little bit more then. But their first date was very public. It was like at this very busy, like the busiest intersection in the city. And I'm intentionally kind of being vague on the details because I don't know if my parents want to like have their whole entire like history yeah. um, <laughs> but it's so but, cute already I mean maybe yeah yeah it's super cute because like they're I guess they were just yelling at each other like so like what do you like to do in your spare time <laughs> they're at the busiest intersection where everyone can see them um but you know obviously eventually it worked out and uh, my uh, my mom came over to America and like they got married in the Mormon temple. And, you know, years and years later, here we are. <laughs> yeah. So wait, okay, wait, I'm just going to jump in right now. Sorry, I'm the annoying oh. one who like interrupts, but I don't know you, Lynn. I'm not as special as Katie and oh I don't know you. <laughs> um, so I want to get to know you because I'm also stalking you on Instagram at this exact moment. And I'm okay. like, I'm going to be best friends with you. So just prepare yourself for that. Yes, I'm so excited. Um, definitely. Guys, she's a badass. Her Instagram is amazing. I'm already like, she's so cool. I told um, you, Sarah. I literally. I know. I know. I just. I was telling her like Instagram. how much of a badass. No, you this are. is no, this is super funny to me because Katie, I actually have very specific memories of like seeing you in the hallways of school and being like, oh my god, she's so cool. She has the coolest fashion sense. Her <laughs> hair is so cool. She was best music. I want to be her friend, but I'm way too nerdy and weird to be her friend. Like. <laughs> Lynn, no, so you were like, this, I'm just like the little like 14 year old of me is like, oh my god, I'm cool. <laughs> you are vastly cooler than me. <laughs> uh, true. I think you could just say we are both very cool. <laughs> all right, all right. Oh, that's so sweet. Oh my god, oh. I'm so flattered. Um, but Sarah, what were you gonna say? I were hear you my ask? cat meowing in the background because he's annoying. Oh, but yeah. I love it. You have all these cats that are cool, and her tattoos are cool, and she's all about like feminism and body positive I love this shit I'm loving yes. it um yes. no I was gonna say like so how how did your mom I mean maybe she doesn't want to have her information out and you don't have to discuss this if you don't want to but I'm just curious how the conversion you know took place like was her family like was your grandparents like were they upset or annoyed or was it like a, a fine whatever that she got married in the temple yeah, it's interesting because Korea is very, very family oriented. I think like most like Asian countries, your family is very, very important to you and your individuality is not as important as making sure that you are there for your family and your community. But Korea also has a very tumultuous history, tumultuous to, I don't know if I, if I said that right, but they have a history <laughs> where... They've been invaded so many times throughout the country's history that they're used to, to change like this. And they're used to kind of like switching religions being the majority. So Christianity is actually pretty popular in Korea. There's no like major religion in Korea. Like it's about aces. So I think like 30 percent of the country identifies as Christian. 30 percent mm. will identify as like Buddhist or Confucian or and, and a majority of them don't have a religion at all. But Christianity was really, really popular, especially after the Korean War and even during the occupation of Korea by Japan. So Christianity isn't necessarily new to Korea. Like my mother definitely knew 
what Christianity was. Um, I think she doesn't necessarily talk a lot about what Mormonism was to her specifically when she converted. I think that's something that's very close to her. Um, but one thing that she did share with me was that um, the thing about if you look at Christianity in general versus what they had before, which was mostly like Confucianism and Buddhism, Buddhism specifically, I think the br the branch or the school in Korea that's quite popular is one that teaches that true nirvana and what enlightenment is, is nothingness, right? Part of the teachings of Buddhism is that attachment leads to suffering. And a lot of Buddhist schools will focus on that, right? Mm -hmm. Don't be attached to things, right? Yeah. And so if you take that with a country that has suffered a lot, like they, like Japanese occupation was extremely, extremely harmful for Korea. And they suffered a lot through that. The Korean War was exceptionally, exceptionally traumatic for Korea. And they suffered a lot through that. So to go from having so much suffering to here and the only antidote to that is nothing isn't very comforting for a lot of people. So when Christianity came in with like the good word, the good book, and there is life after death, there is a heaven and your suffering here in this world is temporary. And if you can just you know, stick to the to the rules and and be and follow these rules and be a good person. There is a reward afterwards. Like there's an afterlife where you can feel joy and happiness and peace. That I think was comforting for a lot of Koreans at the time. And my mom specifically has told me I really liked that. I liked the idea that there was something that I could look forward to. Because I think another thing that's worth mentioning is that my mother grew up in like the slums of post-Korean War Korea. She grew up in extreme poverty. Like her house growing up was like slats of wood and scrap metal made into a shanty home. <laughs> That's how she grew wow. up. Yeah. So with all of that suffering, I think, and then obviously, you know, the economy got better. And so like she didn't live that in her whole life, but, but a good chunk of it in her formative years were were really rough <laughs> yeah to say the least. so I think that is why like Mormonism spoke to her it was like her first and I can't speak to this because I really don't know her experience that much but like my dad was Mormon and so when he was when they were talking about whether or not they wanted to get married or not I think I remember her saying to me that she was like oh I'm not going to join your crazy cult like this doesn't make any sense <laughs> <laughs> but then like years and but like I think it was like a year later or so she wrote to him and she was like yeah I've been meeting with missionaries and I think I'm ready like <laughs> oh interesting yeah yeah wow. it's a very interesting story and I again I hope I'm not like treading too much on like that very like important personal experience of my parents but it's it's hard to not say it because my very existence is because of that it's because of this of this I don't want to say like odd thing but it's very much not the norm right? Yeah. That's a very unusual story for a lot of people. And yeah. I think I remember reading one book about like specifically like mixed race and like Asian identity experience where the author, let me see if I can remember his name really quick. Because I want to make sure I'm citing people. Stephen Murphy Shigematsu. He said that the existence of mixed race children is a reminder of our parents' sexual rebellion. <laughs> because in a way it really is. Like, yeah. like, we walk around and we have this stigma attached to us of 
our parents didn't give a shit mm-hmm. <laughs> about your racism or your social social constructs. And here we are, proof of it. Wow. And we carry that with us as we walk around in our day-to-day life. Wow. <clears throat> what a burden. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. <sighs> so where so where was your dad originally from? Like when when your mom moved over and they got married in the temple? Is yeah, that so the, where they he at that point was um his parents lived in Idaho Falls and so they got married in the Idaho Falls temple. Okay. And while I was Mormon, I actually had the experience of going through that temple and doing like a, a session there. I can't even remember what they're called anymore, guys. It's been so long. <laughs> what do you call oh, um, initiatory? Oh, no. So the initiatory, like you do, like, this is the one where you watch the dumb video. No, I don't oh, want to Oh, an endowment <laughs> session. Yeah, the endowment <laughs> session. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, girl. I know yeah, those so videos. Do, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I did an endowment session there, and that was kind of interesting because it was like, oh, my mom did this. My mom did this <laughs> in this very same building. <laughs> and I wonder how she felt. <laughs> yeah, crazy. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's nuts. So, yeah. That is how my parents met, which is um, a, important to note when it comes to my story. <laughs> yes, we need the background information. Mm-hmm. So that's good. Great. Well, yeah. So now tell us the Lynn story. <laughs> sure. Well, so, yeah, again, I grew up in um, I grew up in Orm, Utah, which is Utah County. And at the time, I think when I grew up, it was um, 80, it was like 89% white, 1.4% Asian. And growing up for me, like there wasn't even, so it's, 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 the mixed race experience is very, very odd. Like when I've read what other people have experienced, because, um, I'll be honest, when you grow up mixed race in a predominantly white community, there's one of two ways you could probably go. You're obviously going to experience racism. That's just the nature of America and the nature of growing up somewhere where everyone is white and and you are very much the outlier. There's two ways you can go. Either you, you go with the flow and so you connect to the majority because it's easier to just kind of assimilate. Or you connect with the mi- with the minority part of you, and so I had this ex- interesting experience because I was very much isolated. And I remember growing up, going to elementary school, and being the only Asian person, and not even full Asian again, right? I'm only half Asian if we're going to like really, really go down to it. But I was the only person who was Asian besides my brother, and that's such a such a very odd experience because like. I've talked about this in therapy quite a lot because unsurprisingly growing up like as a minority in Utah County, then becoming ex-Mormon. Yeah. I, I have mental health issues. I'm going to therapy. Like I have depression. Yeah, of course, I'm going to therapy. And in therapy, I've talked about this a lot where when I was young, I didn't have a concept of like race and racism, right? Because you're just a child and all that stuff is learned. But I had a concept of knowing that there was something very different about me and that I was treated differently. Mm. But if I look back on like, because I've actually kept journals like pretty religiously throughout my life. Like if there is one religion that I have, it was keeping journals. 
like if I look at my journals when I'm quite young, I don't talk about being like, oh, kids bully me and I don't feel happy. I talk about like, I have a crush on a boy. I like this video game. My mom like snapped at me and I'm upset about it. Or like my brother's being like a poo head. Like those are the yeah. things that concern <laughs> me. It isn't until you get older and then look back where you realize a lot of these experiences that you've normalized are very much rooted in racism. So that's an interesting experience. Like there's a quote from uh, a stand-up comedian named Hari Kondabulu. He um, has a, sh- a movie called The Problem with Apu, if you've heard about that one, where he talks about why Apu from The Simpsons is a racist caricature. But in it, he's got like this, he says this really cool thing where he's like, when I was young and I was like getting teased for like being brown skinned and whatever, he's like, I... Like people would tell me like, oh, you just shouldn't be offended. You shouldn't be offended. And he's like, I wasn't being offended. I was being bullied. Like that's what it is. And that's very much the experience I had where I was getting like all of this negativity and I was being bullied, but I was being told, oh, don't be offended by it from everyone. Like from my teachers who were all white, from my parents who just really wanted to see me not suffer. Right. They didn't really teach us as children, how we respond to racism, or even like acknowledge that <laughs> racism is was what was happening to me. Yeah. And I think this has a lot to do with um, what is called the model minority myth, which is gonna tie into Mormonism very, very well. So are you guys familiar with the model minority myth at all? The only way that I even know about this is because of you on social media. That's so I, I cannot wait for you to explain and educate me more because I am definitely <laughs> ignorant about this. Well, and, Ooh, and I've, I've never heard of it. it so. They also don't teach this crap. They don't teach racism in school. Yeah. Right? Yeah. If your only exposure is that if you're going to go out and like do the hard work yourself to you know acknowledge that and try and educate yourself, which is very uncomfortable. So not surprisingly that a lot of people don't do it, right? Mm-hmm. It's not it's not a fun thing to do. You would no. spend your free time doing other things, I imagine, <laughs> more enjoyable things. Right. Um, so, so the myth of the model minority is, very, is about Asian Americans in particular, right? So the model minority stereotype is that like, ugh, it's like hard for me to like explain it in, in a few words. It's, it's basically like, okay, so Asian Americans have had like this complicated history with America, right? You, we first came over primarily through the Chinese with railroad workers, and it was just hard labor, and that's all they saw Chinese as good for, and there was a lot of racism then. Then they stopped, they put a ban in place, and so they didn't let Chinese or Asians immigrate at all. And it wasn't until, like, I want to say, like, the 1960s, 1950s, where they started lifting those restrictions. They wanted more um, minorities from Asia, but with a caveat. It was limited to only those who were highly educated or highly skilled in different, like, uh, like, occupations or areas that were considered valuable to America. So you had this huge influx of Asians like East Asians, South Asians, Southeast Asians, all coming in, but they all were picked because they were elite, right? Mm. So the myth of the model minority is basically that white people in America are looking at Asians and saying, look how successful this minority group is. This, and that's, 
harmful because it says that a minority is only valuable or a quote unquote model minority if they conform and behave a certain way. And East and Asians tend to fit that white comfortable stereotype of minority really well. They were apolitical at the time. They weren't really advocating for more rights. They kind of stuck in their own communities, like in their Chinatowns or Koreatowns, and just and made their own businesses. They were highly economically successful. But all of that was because, again, they were handpicked to be that. And so the harm from the model minority myth is when you, it straight up just creates a racial wedge. So Because I can say that the experience that I have received as a mixed race, like Asian person is not as multifaceted as the racism that someone from the black community or someone with brown skin experiences, mm. because there is much more negative connotations and racial stereotypes that are very, very harmful with that. Right. So people will use like, oh, well, we don't need to give enact policies to help these communities that are underfunded or have no support because just look at the Asians and how well they did. and We didn't have to help them. And if only like these black and brown communities could act more like these Asians who are socially economically accessible, law abiding, productive citizens, it's it, and it's so, so, so harmful because. Again, like these are two comparisons that we cannot make, right? Yeah. One group legitimate, like was honestly stolen from their homeland, brought here to help build the country for free with slave labor, and then expected all of a sudden after slavery ended just to make it on their own versus East Asians or just like Asians in general coming over. And then again, having more resources available to them because again, they were handpicked. It's, 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 it's exceptionally harmful, but the way that the model minority myth just flows in perfectly with Mormonism really exacerbates, really, really exacerbates um, a lot of the harmful effects of Mormonism. Um, so to kind of pivot a little bit, I feel like I've just been talking for a very, very long time, and I apologize if this is... No, no don't. I've like... already... I am loving this. Like yes. you are educating me and I'm over here like, holy shit, that makes so much sense. That's amazing. And I, yeah. I want to bring that up just because like, as we're recording this, like the Black Lives Matter movement is very much still in effect. There's a lot of civil unrest in this country. We're witnessing history books being rewritten. This is the largest civil rights movement in history. And that is very much because of black American activists. They are paving the way for us to do this. And I want to make sure that I'm being very timely with this because again, the racism that I have experienced is not the racism that the black community has experienced. It won't be, it will never be that. But I can use the experiences that I've had with my racism, with my racism to foster empathy and try and make a difference and try and see and try and support the black community the best way I can. Because uh, it's just, there's so many multi, there's so many facets to this because another thing about the model myth, the model minority myth is that the model minority myth, when you see like a white person's vision of a model minority is someone that is very much like them, white. And that white supremacy, which doesn't necessarily have to be like, I have 
until very recently thought as white supremacy is only violent groups, only extremism groups like the KKK, Proud Boys, people who think that because they are white, they have to like stomp out other religion, other races and actively like hate them. But white supremacy is also much more insidious than that. White supremacy is very much also just, I think I'm better because I am white. And people who aren't, aren't white aren't as good as me. And it's not even as, as plain as that. It could just be uh, an implicit bias that you are born with that you can't even recognize. Right. But that white supremacy can be exceptionally harmful. And it's, it's compounded a lot in, particularly for me, Korean culture. Because if I think about what Koreans value after they've been exposed to colonization and they've been exposed to the Western world, it's stuff like white skin, lighter skin. Koreans value and really think that lighter skin is beautiful. That's why they spend so much time developing like what they call skin brightening products, but they're actually whitening products. They are actually designed to lighten the pigment of your skin. And it's considered very beautiful. (laughs) And also like the ways that like my Korean heritage and my Mormon heritage have combined together have, have, really amplified some very problematic things. Like if I think about like Utah, Utah right now is like what the plastic surgery capital of America, right? We have a ton of plastic surgery here. Mormons love to look beautiful, right? It's that idea of perfection. You have to look beautiful and be desirable. The same is with Korea. Korea very much values beauty. So Korea is the capital is the plastic surgery capital of the world. <laughs> they have a lot oh. of plastic surgery done in Korea. One of the most common plastic surgeries that they do is double eyelid surgery, where <gasps> they actually think oh. that so an Asian monolid where there's no crease in the eyelid, that's not as desirable or, or considered beautiful by mainstream standards as having a double eyelid like most Western people do. Oh so my god. I very young and hearing oh my goodness your daughter is so beautiful because she has a crease in her eyelids like surgery it's on it's not uncommon for someone when they graduate high school as their their gift is plastic surgery and most often they'll get double eyelid surgery so they have that crease oh my god like not to sorry not to jump in but this just made me think of it as well like my my sister-in-law is Japanese and my, so my nieces are half Japanese as well. And I remember growing up, so she's been a part of my life since I was like seven, I think six or seven years old. And that, that was like, for me as a white person, like privilege again, not even thinking twice, but I remember her always telling me like, your eyes are like so nice and and big. And she was like, you know, like the cartoon Sailor Moon. And I never got it until I was older (laughs) And she explained to me that, and I was like, oh, the, that's that's part of this racism and that, like, white people want it to be like, oh, your eyes need to look this way, you need to have this type of look. And so then it's this, like, trying to fit in type, I don't know how to, I'm not explaining it well, but point being is no. that like, I never realized that, but as a kid, I just remember thinking, like, what's wrong? Like, I don't understand the difference, because as a kid, you don't really understand obviously like you were saying like situations like that where you don't get it until you're later on like you're mm-hmm. older and then I was like oh it's okay now I understand and um so we've had conversations like really productive conversations about that since then where I've been like wow I I had no idea the the level of racism that she also experienced in some marriage growing up in South Georgia as Oof. well so Oof. yeah 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 I, ugh, it's 
again, like that, that's the insidiousness of racism, right? It sneaks into all of yeah. these different areas of your life. And it's not until you, like, you step back and examine it that you can recognize that those behaviors are in fact racist. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So like this, and so I bring up that model minority stereotype because it goes so well with the history of Mormonism and the history of racism within Mormonism. And I know that you guys have talked about this before, so I'm not going to spend too much time chatting about just how racist Mormon, like Mormonism is really at its core, <laughs> because that's been done. We've talked about that, we know at this point. But like this idea of like that white and delightsome people that is something that a lot of Asians, even if they're not Mormon, can definitely identify with. Because in order for us to gain some of the privileges that we have now, it is very much because we have adopted whiteness to be to, to help us succeed, to help us have that socioeconomic status and to be accepted by a very racist country, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. what was it even like just as recently as like, was it the 1990s where they were still the Mormon church was still doing that Indian student placement program where they were taking yeah. yes. their children from their homes and bringing them into Mormon homes to try and get them to be as white as possible? Like, that's oh. built to this religion. It's like if you are going to be a Mormon and a good Mormon and you're a person of color, it is very much in your best interest to act as white as possible because that's what's considered righteous and what's considered what is valued. Especially oh, wait, Lynn, don't you mean that that was not interpreted the way that we are seeing it? Because I've received so much feedback <laughs> on that scripture that that's not what they meant. They're like, oh, yeah, that the skin of blackness doesn't actually mean that, though. And then you're like, what does it mean? Yeah. That? <laughs> yeah, and it, it doesn't mean it, that it, you're it, literally fair and, and delightsome. It doesn't mean that you're this is not saying that white people are the best. And I'm like, no, that's a, there's no other way to interpret that scripture. I, I don't really know what you're getting at. But yeah. And, and this is also why I for a while and I, I think when I I've definitely pivoted I'm talking very much about like how I view myself in the world now this post-Mormon right when right, I was yeah. Mormon I did not think like this at all but post-Mormon me looks at that and, and, and I'm just like I'm not going to even bother to waste my time to try to correct you because yeah. I cannot talk to, to to someone who uses that argument like someone who was actually informed <laughs> If that makes sense, because if your retort to anything that I try to say, which is backed up by what history actually shows in my experience with, well, that's not what I meant. That's gaslighting. And that's yeah, an yep. tactic. And I'm not going to engage in that because there's no point. I'm not going to sit here and be abused further and further. That's a waste of my time and energy. And as someone who is a person of color and has experienced that racism, I'm not going to sit through and slog through it again. <laughs> yeah, and you shouldn't, you shouldn't have to. Yeah, and nor should anyone who is Mormon, like if you are white and someone's arguing with you like that, yes, like you should be an ally and speak up against it. But if someone is going to try and argue with you on Mormon doctrine in general, don't waste your time if, it, if, if you don't feel up to it. Because you're not going to change their mind because faith as a tactic to to prove your point doesn't it is just not gonna work. It's not gonna work right. because it it's based on nothing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. One hundred percent. Exhaustion. Just even talking about it, I'm like exhausted now. I'm gonna take a very big sip of my iced coffee. Mm. <laughs> 
Oh, God. It's sinner. Ah, it tastes like sin and it's delicious. Mm. <laughs> yum, yum, yum. Nourishes me inside. <laughs> Did you forget to bless it, though, to nourish and strengthen? Oh, gosh, gosh. Okay, quick, quick, quick sidebar. <laughs> One yeah. day I was uh, clearing out, um, I was helping someone move, and they had, for some reason, a bunch of uh, sacrament cups. <laughs> Like the little little ones that you would take the sacrament. And I was like, I'm taking these. You don't want them, right? And they didn't want them. So I took them home and definitely came home, <laughs> put them on my island, filled them up with vodka. And like, <laughs> we were like, oh, like, should we bless this? <laughs> and like, we were sitting, there was like a group of friends and like the, the men in the group who were all, who were all ex-Mormon, they were just like, oh, why can't I remember this? It's been so long. Like, like, and they were kind of mad that like, they used to have that prayer memorized and yeah. like, they couldn't remember it off the top of their head because it's been so long. <laughs> oh my god, that's amazing! That but, but, is so amazing. I want to have vodka sacrament. <laughs> Me too. are so small that it's not even worth it. Like we did that. Like we took the little sip, and I was like, "That was nothing. This isn't even a half of a shot." <laughs> it's like nothing to do anything. <laughs> oh my god, so good. <clears throat> so good. Yeah. So. What next? <laughs> um, well, let's see. So tell us about, if you want, like, tell us about growing up in in Utah County, maybe. I mean, I know, I think actually, Lynn, I'm pretty sure that you and I had seminary together. Oh, my God, probably. <laughs> I think we did at one point. Because listeners, if you're not, like, from Utah or haven't been Mormon, in Utah, they have seminary for every single period, every single class period, because there's so many Mormons. So, like, it's just worked into your normal day. And I think I recall I was in your seminary class a few times. And- oh, my gosh. Okay. So, I'm going to Sieg Miller. Were you in Sieg Miller's class? <gasps> That's the name. And, yes, I was. Okay. Yep. One, uh-huh. fuck that guy. Oh, yeah. Two, mm. fuck that guy. <laughs> Why? Tell me more, because I'm, like, over here jealous that I had seminary at, like, fucking butt crack dawn at 7 a.m. at the church. Oh, God. I mean, oh. uh, no. So the experience of being, like, mixed race and Mormon in predominantly white Utah County is is interesting because you – I got a lot of – I, I never got a unified message. It's part of the problem we don't have paid clergy with Mormonism is that they interpret this, the teachings however they wish to, right? There is, yeah. there is very little guidance when someone is called to be like a Sunday school teacher right. or and a bishop or a first counselor. And they're put in these positions of leadership where people look to them for guidance and they don't have any of the training to do it. So I would get so many mixed messages where I had some teachers say, oh, no, race isn't an issue at all. Like, God loves you no matter what, you know, where you came from, what color you are. And then I had other teachers who would say, no, because you are not completely white, there is no chance you are ever going to get in the celestial kingdom no matter how hard you try. Like. Yeah, and it's and it's very conflicting because again, like as a very, as a young kid, I was also very much taught to just trust authority. That's yeah. again the privilege that I have. Uh, e- still being a person of color, I am still privileged in that I was taught to trust authority because it was much safer for me to trust authority than other minority groups. Right. right? Look at the world now. Black people are getting murdered in the U.S. by police, and people are arguing about whether or not 
police can be allowed to do that. That's ridiculous. I have never had that experience at all. Like, so that's very confusing for me as a child because I'm trying to listen and, and, and be the best person I can be, be the best Mormon I could be. And I, and I wasn't even getting guidance on that. Um, like, again, I'm quoting Hari Kondabulu again, because like, he's, has said so many things about race that I just empathize with and his words are just better than mine. So like he said specifically, like the thing is, is that people of color, we have to humanize white people. It's in our best interest to humanize white people. We have no choice. We have to get work. We have to go to school and our teachers are white. The police officers are white. We have to function in a world that is not made for us. And that's very much true in Mormonism too. In order for us to function in Mormonism, we have to humanize white leaders and white people all around us so it's but to to the point where that these people will never bother to humanize you Mm. and that's very very confusing for a young person so I grow up and not only am I getting conflicting messaging from my church leaders where that is supposed to be a community and I'm getting conflicting messages um from what my own spirit says to be true and what I what what I value in myself so I grew up feeling very very inadequate in a lot of ways and the model minority myth also plays into this too right the stereotype is of Asians is that they're all smart we are good at math we are successful we are hardworking, right mm-hmm. but if I'm like just a kid growing up with no other Asians around me and I'm still held to that standard. It was very confusing because I wasn't good at math (laughs) growing up. I was very, very bad at it, but everyone was expecting me to be like that. And I just, and if I can't live up to it on so many levels, because like there's Asian perfectionism that's driving this shame. There's Mormon perfectionism that's driving this shame and it just amplifies it. So I grew up very confused and very and feeling very much like I wasn't good enough ever 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 and Mormonism already is bad at thinking at telling you that you're never good enough right you could always be doing that so that was really 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 difficult and when I hit puberty it got it got worse because like you're already having so many hormonal changes and the your place in the world is very very confusing so when I hit puberty I it it was it got much much worse and I was very very like depressed and didn't know where I fit in and a lot of that was written off as just puberty right Um, that's just normal for someone going through that like it's normal for you to feel like you don't have a place it's normal for you to feel like you don't belong that no one listens to you that you're not good enough that uh no one's paying attention to you or if they are paying attention to you it's under a microscope and you're being and like everyone's like judging you all the time right um Um, so that was also amplified by the fact that mixed race kids don't really have community to fall back on right so a good example of this is like um so I grew up in in Orem but my dad um had the opportunity to teach at Nanjing University in China in the year like 2000 I think and he took it so our whole entire family moved from Utah to China and we stayed there for a year and I remember thinking as we moved and I was like oh 11 12 13 around that age mm-hmm. um think oh my god this is my time my whole entire life I've been bullied because I'm Chinese right I've been bullied for looking Chinese looking Asian and I'm going to finally go to a country that is China and I'll fit in 
And then I go there and instead of getting racism for being Asian, I got racism for being American. Oh, my gosh. Which is very, very weird. So a lot of mixed race kids, it's not unique to just me. We don't have a safe harbor to fall back on. We don't have community to fall back on. So where do we go when, like, we can't fit in with the white people because of the nature of how we look and what and the nature of whiteness? You're never going to fit in with that community because there's this part of you that prevents you from being white. But then you're also never going to fit in with the community that prevents you from fitting in with the white community because, again, you're not fully that either. So I'm not fully Korean. I don't speak Korean. Like, my mom didn't teach us Korean growing up because, one, like, she was learning how to speak English. She spoke pretty good English, but she was still trying to, like, assimilate into American culture. And as the model minority myth shows, it's a lot easier, especially since there wasn't a big Korean community, it's a lot easier for her to just act white. It's a lot Mm -hmm. easier for her to just speak English to her kids because she wants to protect us from the racism that she experienced, like coming to America, not being able to speak English, being an immigrant, being an immigrant is exceptionally hard. So when I went to Korea to visit my family, because there were multiple times I did that, like I couldn't speak to my grandma. I had to kind of mime. I couldn't speak to my cousins. And in Korea, the parts of me that were admired were the parts of me that were white. Again, that kind of white supremacy where it's like, oh, your eyelids are so beautiful. Oh, your skin color is like a little bit lighter. Oh, like you've got brown hair instead of black hair. So, but at the same time, if I ever tried to to like truly connect with my Korean side, they would call me half breed. (laughs) Or I couldn't fit in because I'm still not Korean. I'm mixed race. And so you don't get you don't get a safe harbor to connect to. There's rejections on both sides. So where are you going to go if you don't have your heritage to fall back on? And you could argue that religion can give you that sense of community. Religion, if it's if you look at it in its best light, does that because it technically shouldn't care where you come from. And it gives you a place to go every Sunday and it gives you a place where you can connect with people. But you're never, ever going to find that in Mormonism, right? So I couldn't even fall back on my religion for a place to give me, like, safe harbor. So you just grow up feeling kind of homeless. You grow up not not having a place to truly feel like you could rest. There's this this Korean term specifically called han, and it's a newer term, and it's it's a, it's a hard thing to translate into English. It's it's comes from the Chinese character hen, which translates to like hatred, regret, or resentment. And Han is often translated as like sorrow, spite, resentment, regret, grief, but it really doesn't have like an English equivalent. Mm-hmm. But um, it's this thing about Korea about Korean culture where they say that Han is deeply rooted in all Koreans because we have a constant grief that is pervasive throughout our whole country in terms of constantly being occupied constant recently most recently with Japanese occupation that was from 1910 to 1945 that long Korea was occupied by Japan and Japan tried very very hard to squash Korean culture and get them to assimilate to Japanese culture as closely as possible but one thing I do identify with is in this concept of Han is this constant feeling of being less than whole and I feel that a lot 
sometimes where throughout my life, I've kind of vacillated between how I identify very much in my adolescence. It was much easier for me to identify as white and be as white as possible to connect with the world. Um, very often, but like, but later in life, it was like right now I'm really trying to explore my Korean identity. So I'm trying to learn more about how to cook Korean foods. I'm trying to learn Korean so I can speak to my extended family. Um, but it's much harder and still like, even if I did everything, like if I decided that like I wanted to be as Korean as possible and move to Korea and, and speak only Korean and blah, blah, blah. I, I, again, I still would never fully fit in there. <laughs> mm. So where is there to go? That's really um, interesting. And obviously something that Katie and I can never understand or relate to so it's just kind of like this whole time you've been talking I'm just like mine is blown (laughs) and the interesting thing is like a lot of this that I have that I've been talking about is stuff that I've learned just recently because I've only been able to explore and try and learn and understand my my upbringing and my heritage and the nature of being mixed race just recently because when you're young and honestly quite privileged like I just it didn't occur to me that source of my discomfort and depression could be because I was being like racially oppressed or because I had no like racial identity. So to kind of get back more into like Mormonism though, cause I'm just talking a lot about being Korean. <laughs> I love it. I yeah. love, I'm here for it. <laughs> Yay. Like, so like growing up, it was really interesting. So like uh, coming back to America from China, um, a lot of, I had to, again, kind of like make, find a place where I fit because the way that uh, school works in America or not America in Utah was that like kindergarten to sixth grade is where is considered elementary school. The rest of the nation, like sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade and ninth grade, that's technically junior high. Right. But Utah does it differently. So like seventh, eighth and ninth was considered junior high here in Utah. And then 10th, 11th, and 12th, that was considered high school versus like the rest of the world of America, it's 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th, that's high school, right? So when I came back to uh, the U.S., I was um, in the eighth grade. So I came in where technically I wouldn't be migrating from like elementary school to junior high. I was thrown right into you're in the middle of junior high. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to kind of like build up a new community of friends because the friends that I had when I was in elementary school were kind of gone. They went to different high school or junior high school. So I came back and I kind of had to build it up again. And like most like depressed, <laughs> angry, like preteens, like I got really into like punk culture. <laughs> like yes. you, you, you could, you can you can relate to this I think like yeah yeah so like when we were oh, in yeah. some Sieg Miller's class or whatever like I had like my Chuck Taylors and I drew like my favorite names of my bands on and like Sharpie marker and yeah I, like, I had really. pink ones I thought I was so cool they were so cool again remember how I would like look at you and just be like oh I just want to be like that no 
Oh, very much so. So like that was my kind of adolescence and all throughout high school. I was like this punk ass kid, but a very still a Mormon punk ass kid. Right. So I like swore. And I think I got drunk coffee a couple of times oh. and I definitely like went too far with my first boyfriend. Ooh la la, you know, but like all of it, <laughs> like I was offered like booze and weed and I would always turn it down. Like, no, 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 no. Like for it's so funny, like still to this day, like those substances are so 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 like hard for me and it was like me trying to take my my first drink of alcohol later in life was quite the story because I was just like oh god I don't know like it was just brainwashed into me so much that that stuff was so bad but Mm -hmm. like Mormonism teaches that like sexual sin is one of the biggest sins that you can do and I definitely was like experimenting a lot sexually when I was younger right like because (laughs) you have hormones and it is a natural human drive and it is normal for a teenager to do those things right but all all in the context of pleasing a partner (laughs) which again I think is a bit is, is a way that like like Asian culture and Mormonism can kind of blend in perfectly because if you're not taught like proper sex education where you are taught like here's what consent is (laughs) here is like what a female orgasm feels like here's how you masturbate like to explore your sexuality safely like we didn't have any of that so all of my sexual exploration was just what pleasure can I give someone else and what can I offer them to make them feel good? And then that will make me feel valued. Because again, I'm still dealing with like inadequacies from like Mormonism and mixed race culture. So a lot of it went into like, well, what can I give someone else? And again, if you also look at what does popular media portray an Asian woman as being at the time, Lucy Liu. So I either have to be really good at martial arts or I have to be fucking sexy or both. Oh <laughs> and I'm not a very person. So... I'll do the other one. <laughs> and even when I went to BYU, because again, like, even with all of the uh, the problems that I had with Mormonism at the time, I still, again, very much trusted authority. So growing up, when I, like, especially when I was in high school, all the time, like, I would complain, like, oh, like, the things that I'm hearing in church don't make sense. Like, the things that we've talked about a lot, like well, what does it mean when families can be together forever, but I can't get into the celestial kingdom because I'm, like, Asian? Or even, like, if I decide to leave the church, like, how can families truly be together forever if I'm not going to be in the top tier of the celestial kingdom left with my parents or whatever? Like, and they don't have answers for that because it's all made up. (laughs) Yeah, like, so I remember thinking that, but still just trusting in, like, what you are, what you hear all the time, like, Line upon line, precept upon precept. I just Ew, had. No, I hate it. No, I know. Even saying that just like fills me with like. <laughs> yeah, same. It's, not a, it's not a good feeling, but um, uh, I just had so much faith that if I just kept on doing what the church said for me to do, I'd figure it out. Like it would make sense eventually, right? I just didn't have the capacity to understand it then because like I was a teenager and. Um, and we'll get answers later. So I just, I very much had faith in that. Um, so I, I even ended up going to BYU mostly because it was cheap. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. It's really, really inexpensive. And so I was like, great, like I can do that because again, I'm not a, a quote unquote good Asian either. So I didn't get scholarships. Like I didn't get scholarships to go to any of like any good schools. So I was like, okay, BYU it is. Um, and even at BYU, 
<laughs> like if you have a problem with Mormonism in general, if you go to BYU, it's like Mormonism at its most extreme. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like the joke that everyone always says is like, oh yeah, I grew up Mormon. I grew up Mormon in Utah and BYU was weird. <laughs> <laughs> Very, very weird. Very, very weird. Yeah, it was not great. And one of the things that I've experienced there, and like you both did, wait, Katie, did you go to BYU? No, thank goodness. I did not go to BYU, but Sarah did. Yes, I did. Yeah, so you know exactly what I'm talking about, like the secret police. Like, yes. (laughs) It's like trying to like live your life as righteously as possible because you're encouraged to narc on each other if if you're not doing that like listen I mean I also live in Berlin right now so it's a real coincidence where I'm like I went from BYU to a country that is also used to snarking and like ratting people out and like carefully watching like we joke because my neighbors are like that because I'm in East Berlin and they're like always trying to see what we're doing and snitching on the neighbors and I'm like Jesus like I'm back at BYU again like (laughs) yeah it's like trigger warnings everywhere I know I'm just like oh it's terrible yeah so that's also not a great experience for um like a lot of Americans when they go to university it's their first chance that they're out of their home they're not living with their parents so they do a lot of experimentation right you don't get to do that at BYU not at BYU (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's just more of the same bullcrap, except amplified much harder because you run the risk of if you do sin, you get kicked out. So it's not just I don't I can't sin because it's wrong. It's I can't sin because my future depends on it. My education depends on it. So that's even more pressure and it's even more stifling. But the other interesting thing I ran into BYU is that it was the first time that I was around a lot of different cultures and a lot of Asians, a lot of Koreans. And normally that would be a good thing. Normally that's something that would, I would find a lot of comfort in, but because I had been isolated from it for so long, when I met other Koreans, I didn't, I, I felt a lot of shame because I wasn't like them. Like I remember taking a Korean class my first semester at BYU and thinking, this is it. Like I'm going to be able to finally connect with my culture. I'll learn Korean not really understanding or fully comprehending that Korean is one of the hardest languages for an English speaker to learn. (laughs) My class was full of like returned missionaries, a couple of people like me who were like the children of first generation Korean immigrants who didn't speak Korean, so they wanted to learn it and linguist majors because they were required to take it because the Korean language is so different from English like the pronunciation is different the grammar structure is different and so I did not succeed (laughs) at learning (laughs) Korean in university it was not good I had the lowest grade of my life (laughs) trying to it was just an elective and I was like well again the my future is at stake so I'm not going to take Korean for a second semester because I don't want my GPA to get low so I don't get into a good grad school (laughs) wow oh yeah Yeah, so there's like a lot of like resentment there. And then also the other experience I had at BYU was um, the first experience that I had with returned missionaries from Korea. Oh, God, I can't. Like, if if Mormon males feel entitled to women already, which they do, a returned missionary from Korea 
feels entitled to a Korean woman's experience or just body or just life even more. So I would have like these returned missionaries come up to me and immediately speak Korean to me, thinking that they were so thinking that they were going to impress me. And I'm just like, I don't understand you at all. And a lot of times, even it was just men coming up to me and speaking whatever Asian language (laughs) that they had to learn. Chinese. All of the different languages. Occasionally, even because because I have like unique features because I am mixed race someone would come up to me and start speaking like a completely different language and I'm like I what like, oh you're not from Azerbaijan I'm like no I'm not from Azerbaijan <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry I, like I, I I do not understand you so oh my god in, in terms of like boundaries with these people too that's that's very hard because they feel entitled to take your time and 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 use you to to further their missionary work or to further this idea that they have that they are part of the culture that they were forced to be in for two years or whatever (laughs) and that was again like another one of those experiences where it was I, I not only was I upset because they weren't like obviously respecting me but also because they were, again, given an experience that I was denied. Like, a lot of Asians, like I said before, feel the pressure to be as white as possible. So they don't speak their native language to their children. Like, if you can just be as white as possible, then, like, you can, then then maybe life is easier for you here in America. Mm-hmm. But if you, like, in my opinion, like, that's one of the cruelest things that you can that you can do to someone is to take away their language because then you almost completely sever their connection to their heritage. Like, how am I supposed to like hear the stories of my culture? How am I supposed to speak to my relatives? How am I supposed to communicate or even connect with this entire half of myself if I can't understand it at all? Like I can still have that connection. I just have to work work much, much harder for it now. If in comparison to if I've been taught that at a younger age. So like there's there's all of that shame. And at the same time, the Mormon community that has that white supremacy that's suppressed that that would say like no be as white as possible, then lauds and praises young white men for learning another language on their mission all the time. All yeah. the time. And it's like a cruel, sick joke to me. It's, it, it, it fills me with a lot of anger because, again, not only is a white man allowed to behave in a way that I am not, even though that is my heritage, he is going to do that and get that experience all for the benefit of Mormonism and still all for the benefit of white supremacy. How do we, when we are Mormon, teach these young white men to go out into the world. We teach them to go out into the world and to learn a language to spread Mormonism, a very American religion. <laughs> so yes. it's not even the intention of even to really understand the culture that you are living in for two years. It is with the expectation that you change that culture. And I'm not the first person to say this, but a lot of people say missionary work right now is just modern colonization. It is yeah. trying to force our culture on these other cultures that, Honestly, like they won't say it, but it's rooted in in trying to civilize them. Wow. And I, there's only value in those cultures if they're Mormon, if they adopt our religion. <laughs> oh, my God. This and is that, 
Oh, yeah, man. It, it's heavy shit. It's heavy, heavy shit. And again, like, we don't think about this unless we broaden our understanding of the world and we look at this with a critical and open mind, which, again, Mormonism teaches you not to do, not to do at all. So, so anyway, so to, to continue my story, because we are now our 10 minute in. You know, that's fine. I'm just over here loving every single minute. So yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I really do hope it's valuable. <laughs> no, this is amazing, Lynn. Like I really, there's been so many times where if you could see my face, my mouth is open and I'm like, how have I not thought of this this way before? It's like, I kind of realized this stuff, but you're putting it in such a way that makes it so clear and so perfectly worded. So yeah, you just keep on going, boo. No, and, yeah, that's, exactly. That's exactly how I feel. for me to hear because I think a lot of people, we sit with Mormonism and we feel uncomfortable. It grates on us. It pokes us like a, like a hair shirt and we don't know why. And it isn't until like, again, like we really, really try and educate ourselves on it, then we understand. And that's when healing happens, is when we understand, right? Yeah. yeah. So so my experience, so I go to BYU, I have a hell of a time, it's not great. Um, I'm still struggling a lot. Um, one of the things that was interesting about my time at BYU is that um, because like, it's that perfect storm of all of those shame and, and, and pressure. And there's no room to mess up because if you mess up, the consequences are so severe. I had a, I had a problem with self-harm at the time. So I was cutting myself a lot. And what was interesting to me about that was that when, when I would go to my bishops, whenever I changed wards, because you have to get an ecclesiastical endorsement every year to attend a BYU, where they will ask you if you're living to the honor code standards, how Mormon are you, et cetera. And every single time I would talk to a bishop, they would get to chastity, which is so important. The Mormon church has an obsession with sex and young people, and it's disturbing. (laughs) You've probably, you've talked about it before. We don't need to get too much into it here, but, um, with all of that sexual shame, it got to a point where, and I don't think consciously at the time I was thinking like, oh, this is how I'm going to, you know, solve it. But I would, I would self-harm in the hopes that the punishment that I gave myself was enough. So I didn't have to have the punishment of clergy or I didn't have to have the punishment of Mormonism for my bishop. So I, like, I remember this one specific moment, like I had had a sexual encounter with a young man (laughs) and afterwards I was feeling so 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 ashamed so I'm sitting in the shower and I've got like the razor and I'm thinking to myself if I just do this will will, will this pain stop if I do this is that enough do like you don't have to punish me God like I'll punish myself for my transgression like you don't have to do it like I will just do this so I don't have to like have the shame of having to talk to my bishop yet again about like doing something that is very, very human, right? Yeah. (laughs) It's too much built into us to want to have sex. And so that was also another big struggle. Um, Then luckily I met a young man for the second time named Jerem. (laughs) I also went to high school with him <laughs> yeah so, so the story of how jerem and i met was like so we all went to the same high school katie jerem and i and jerem uh was a transfer student he transferred in midway through the year and he was so cute <laughs> 
so 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 cute. I remember. Oh my him god, you're adorable. <laughs> no, so like he had like he was like that mod punk. So like he had like spiky hair and a belt that was like white and studded with a buckle on the side, tight jeans, like Chuck Taylors band shirts that were like super trendy. Like he was just like he was just this enigma. And he's had his own experience with Mormonism being very toxic to him when he moved out of state into Utah for the first time. And, you know, that would be an interesting conversation for a later time. But we didn't really talk in high school because I was very, again, intimidated. I'm like, oh, he's like too hot, too cute, too cool. Like, I, I just, there's no chance. There's no chance that I would ever, ever, ever stand a chance with him at all. So it was one of those things we would just like pass each other in the hall and be like, hey, hey, <laughs> and just keep walking because we're too shy. <laughs> and it wasn't until later when he got back from his mission. And he came back, um, and at the time when, after he came back um, from his mission, I came back from a study abroad to just London. It wasn't anything super exotic. And then I came back, and uh, he, his best friend was dating my best friend. And so by association, we, like, started to get close uh, to each other. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so when I met him, I was actually considering going on a Mormon mission, um, honestly, because my older brother had served a Mormon mission. And because, you know, he's Korean, half Korean, he served a mission in Korea. And so I was thinking, ooh, well, if I serve a mission, maybe I can also go to Korea and like have a chance to connect with my culture that way. Cause that's like the only like acceptable, easy way to connect with my culture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was considering going on a mission and then I met Jerem and then I was like, I would much rather be with this person instead. <laughs> So I didn't finish the paperwork and uh, we got married instead and we got married in a Mormon temple. And that was quite the experience, to say the least. Wow. Like, so, again, like Sarah, you went through the temple, but Katie, you did not, right? Right. Okay. so your first time going through the temple, everyone's always like, what the fuck? (laughs) because it's completely different from the mormonism you grew up with right like yeah it was very shocking very yeah yes 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 and I remember like talking to Jerem about it because he had obviously gone through the temple and he was just like read the pearl of great price read that book and you'll and 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 that's what you will it will prepare you for what you're going to experience in the temple to a degree (laughs) to a degree we definitely (laughs) talked about creation and that was a that was a whole entire thing but nothing could have compared would have prepared me for the weird veil the the shifting of robes the The hands in the air and saying oh god hear the words coming from my mouth (laughs) yeah all the repetition all this stuff and 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 what's really interesting to me at the time (laughs) is that at the time, I wasn't that wigged out because I was like, oh, a lot of things that I've been told now all of a sudden make sense. Because if we were told that this is like the true church restored, part of me was like, well, then why are, why is it so modernized? Like all of, all of the stuff that we have with our Mormon like Sunday school meetings and like sacrament meetings, that's all quite tame, really in comparison to what religion used to be, right? Which was yeah, a yeah. lot of rituals, a lot of like repetitive hand movements, a lot of mysticism. And we didn't have that in Mormonism. So honestly, the first time I went to the temple, I was like, oh, this is where all that ancient shit comes in. 
<laughs> like we've been telling me so for so long that like Joseph Smith restored the gospel and this is what Jesus wanted to be. I'm like, well then why don't we have altars? Why don't we have like <laughs> like anything anything biblical really in any of Mormonism? And then I got to the table like, oh this makes sense. And then it turns out he yeah. stole it all since so it's all horse shit anyway. <laughs> so it, for me it's like if you're really into like fantasy and LARPing, go to the temple. It's awesome. You get to pretend that like you're part of like this ancient secret society and you get to like do weird rituals and like shift your clothes around and that means something. Dope. Like I feel like an ancient druid. Yeah. <laughs> For real though. <laughs> but, like seriously. And so like that, that didn't wig me out so much, but the sexism certainly did bug me. A lot, a oh, lot, a lot. Me too. Uh, that, that yeah. very, very, very uncomfortable with me for the whole time. And when we actually got married, I don't remember much of what the person who married us said to, to us, except I do remember him making sure that I understood the patriarchal order and that means Ugh. that I have to be subservient to my husband and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and that's what I remember about the marriage to my husband of almost 10 years. <laughs> Is that? Wow. Is that? And then the other, yeah. So it's interesting because a lot of um, the experience that I have had being Mormon and now ex-Mormon is a lot different from what other people's experiences are. So we got married, honestly, as, as quickly as we did. It was like a year after we, a year and a half, a year after we started dating. Um, so that's quick in Mormon terms, even like pretty quick. Um, and the reason that we got married so quickly was because obviously we wanted to have sex with each other <laughs> and also yeah. because it was at the beginning of the fiscal school year. And so if we wanted to qualify for Pell Grants, <laughs> we have to get married before the school year started. So we're like, oh, we love it. it. <laughs> Practical <laughs> reason. <laughs> <laughs> and so we got married super quickly and then like after we got married is when I started to really have like my first major racial identity crisis after I was married to a white man in the Mormon temple is when I really started to examine okay what is my racial identity how does that shape who I am and how I connect with the world and there's this book um that was done by a photographer that's called, wait, one second, 50% Asian, one, I think it's called 50% Asian, 100% Hapa. And Hapa is a term in um, in Hawaiian that means hat. And it was originally a racial slur for the uh, Asian, from Asian immigrants who came to Hawaii and then, you know, had children with people there. And so their half-breed children, quote unquote, were called Hapa as a racial slur. And then it's been been adopted by the community so now a lot of people they don't identify as like part korean or part white they identify as hapa or they don't identify as like part asian or part something else they identify as hapa and like hapa could technically be your community and there was this book by kip fullbeck who's a photographer who took a picture took pictures of uh hapa people from you know all uh ages small children, old people, and he just took pictures of their faces and they had, and then had them write the answer to the question that a lot of mixed race children get is, what are you? You're not asked, what race are you? Or what is your heritage? People would ask me all the time when I was in, what are you? Because oh, they didn't know. Wow. I feel racially ambiguous because they're not used to seeing mixed race people, even though there's plenty of us. 
Yeah. And so that was the first time that I remember seeing people who actually looked like me, who weren't models or musicians or someone famous because mixed race Asians is particularly in Asia are really sought after because of their uniquely white features, right? We've talked about like whiteness being admired in Asian culture as being beautiful, right? So a lot of like successful mixed race people that you see are famous. And so that also leads to another kind of weird sense of like inadequacy, because if we don't have a lot of representation on what hapas look like and what they can do, and the only example you get of that are people who are famous and massively successful on that, on that scale, it, it can be very, very discouraging because, you know, I'm not a model. I'm not famous. Like I'm not an athlete. And so what do I have to measure myself against in terms of success? There's very little representation. So that was the first time that I just saw normal people who looked like me. And it was it was like a breath of fresh air. It was almost like finding safe harbor. And so I spent a lot of my t- a lot of my first year of marriage where I'm living with someone for the first time. I'm in a sexual relationship for the like a PIV like sexual relationship for the first time. And I'm also married, which is the end all be all of Mormonism. Right. The most important thing you can do is get married. And so I'm dealing with all of those within the first year of marriage. It's a lot, a lot of change. It's a lot of, lot of self-exploration. It was rocky roads for both of us, like for both my husband and I, because, you know, I had lived my whole life essentially being white and I hadn't really explored this, this Korean part of me or even this mixed race part of me until, until now. And so we had a, a lot of a lot of conversations about that because, you know, as wonderful as my husband is again, like we, the conversations that we're having, having now in America are all like racism isn't just being mean or having right. hate it's born into you and you are in, it's ingrained in you and you have to unlearn it. You have to like decolonize your mind if you're mixed or as a white person, you have to acknowledge what that white privilege is and how it has benefited you. So we had a lot of really, really difficult conversations when we were first married. And I'm just lucky that through the brainwashing of Mormonism that both my husband and I have have lived through, we were able to still find each other and connect on a level that is truly love and human which a lot of Mormon couples, if they get married really quickly and then decide to leave the church, don't get. Yeah. A lot of times, like when when you decide to leave the church, either one person does and another person does, or another person doesn't, and, and then you split, you, you divorce, and that was and that's super scary. But I'm really lucky that like both Jeremy and I, when we were dating, we had very real conversations with each other about our doubts about the church, about what we liked about Mormonism and what we didn't like about Mormonism. And after we got married and after I started to explore more, my first experience with like, okay, Mormonism truly isn't working for me and I think I need to leave was around that Mormon feminist movement, if you remember the Wear Pants to Church movement. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was, yeah, that was my first experience with it. Because honestly, like, sexism and, and Mormonism bugged me my whole entire life. It It's very, very, very clear just from the way that the church is set up and its structures and its policies. They, they don't like women. They hate women. They're terrified of women. Uh-huh, and yeah. so... 
the wear pants church movement was me being like, holy shit, if I am going to make Mormonism work for me, this is how it will work. It looks like this. It looks like, you know, women trying to find equal ground. Like if, if, if the church had adopted and, and responded to that movement better, maybe I would have stayed in it. I'm not sure, honestly. You know, probably not, actually, because <laughs> now that I think about it, because after that went so poorly, because I did participate in the wear pants church movement, I was really trying to make Mormonism work. And I had clashed a lot with my in-laws. I clashed a lot with my family. I clashed a lot with like a lot of people that I used to know when I went to BYU when I was outspoken about that. And then after seeing the church just completely squish it and sweep it under the rug and gaslight the shit out of all those women who were trying to advocate for change. I was like, I don't know if I can handle this anymore. Because for me, there were at least three reasons why you would stick with Mormonism. One, you truly believe the gospel is true and you believe in the church's teachings. Two, it gives you a sense of community that you need in order to survive as a human being. Human beings need connection. We need community. That was another part of it, the social aspect. And then the third would be that I feel a connection to a, a God and it is a Mormon God and I know that he exists and he loves me for who I am. And at, the po- at, at that point, I did not have any of those. I didn't have any of it. I didn't have a sense of community. I didn't believe the doctrine because the doctrine is full of holes because it's fabricated and made up by a man, a con man, right? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I didn't have a personal connection with God. I didn't. I I, I have always struggled with feeling that like when I prayed, feeling something or feeling like there was a heavenly father who loved me. I never really felt that even when I tried very, very hard, like at BYU, deciding to go on a mission, all of those things. I just never really felt it. Um, and that was about the time that I found the CES letter, like a lot of ex-Mormons. <laughs> that was like, yep, for me, that was the nail in the coffin. When I read the CES letter for the first time and I was directly confronted with, because like lots of people, I ignored church history. I ignored the holes in that because if you look at it critically, it falls apart, right? Mm-hmm. If you look at the history, there, Mormonism does, does not make sense. It does not exist. I struggle to even call it a religion. It's not. It's a cult. It, all of it is fabricated. And reading the CES letter for the first time and seeing it all laid out, those doubts that I knew were there, I was just too scared to look at them. To see that, I was like, then there's nothing for me. There is nothing keeping me here in Mormonism at all. And so I stopped. Like, to be honest, when I when Jeremy and I first got married, we really didn't go to church anyway. Ironically is because he got a job with the church <laughs> and he had to work on Sundays in order to do that job for the church. <laughs> really? That's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So we weren't going to church because because of that. And there was also an interesting thing that happened to me at BYU now that I think about it, where I was, my degree was in public health. And so I was with a professor who was doing, who wanted to do a study about health and hygiene practices in Mormon nurseries, because Mormon nurseries aren't they're not daycares, so they don't have to stick to government regulations on on child care protections, right? It's just random people throwing their kids in a room, hoping for the best. <laughs> or, no, there's there's no training on like how to keep children safe and healthy. There's no training on how to avoid injury or anything like that. So the study was basically just to let's see if we can take a 
if we can survey people who are nursery leaders to ask them, what kind of training do you get on infectious disease or injury prevention? And would you like more? That was it. It was just a survey. And I remember like the professor that I was doing this uh, study with was like, okay, like we are sending letters to the Lee Society primary and the first presidency to make sure that they, that they're giving us permission technically because we're at BYU to do the study, to even ask these questions. And he sent the letters. I think he got something back from the primary being like, yeah, that's fine. Go ahead and do it. And then we were like, great. So we started the survey. We opened it up. It was all online. And halfway through the day, we get a call from our professor saying, shut it down. We have gotten a letter from, I can't say who, just a member of the 12 who was saying that we shouldn't do this anymore. So we stopped, we stopped it. And I remember like our professor called us in. It was me and one other, uh, one other person who were um, the, you know, research assistants or whatever for the study. And um, our professor comes in and he's furious, furious. And he's just like, I gave them every chance to get back to me on whether or not this was okay. I think it's dumb that I have to ask permission to do this anyway. And they said to stop. And I, and we have to, because this church, because the church said so, and this is a church school. So we're not doing the study anymore. I'm sorry. Like you're not getting credit. (laughs) You're not going to get you're not going to get like your name on a publication like it it's it's just done it's squished it's it's gone and it was entirely because the church doesn't give guidelines the only thing that they give you know nursery teachers in terms of like infectious disease prevention or injury prevention is a piece of paper that says um if a kid has a runny nose you can say that the that the parent needs to take care of him and that you don't have to take the kid to be in nursery for the duration of church if they have a runny nose that's it that is it. <laughs> That's it. And what was in, what was really discouraging is that some of the responses that we did get before we had to shut the survey down was people really, really wanted more instruction. They wanted to know how to best care for kids. They wanted to know signs to look out for, what they could do to make nursery safer. They just didn't have the guidance from the church. And to my knowledge, I don't think they still have it. <laughs> no, I doubt it. We weren't allowed to do that study. So... That was also a reason why I stopped going to church because I was just like, well, for for starters, every newly married couple gets called into the nursery. And I was like, well, I don't I'm not sure if I can be in nursery because I'm doing the study about nursery practices. And I don't want to, like, have my calling in the church skew the results of the study because it very much could be you're supposed to be like, you know, very. uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh. Oh, come on, Lynn. Words are easy for you. Uh, like not influenced, not like bipartisan or whatever, just like not influencing the study at all. And by anyway, no, no, yeah, no. bias. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> you didn't want bias in the study. God, that was hard. <laughs> so, yeah, that was part of the reason we stopped going to the church. But then after I read the CES letter, I was like, you know what? No, there's nothing, nothing, nothing keeping me from doing, from staying in here anymore. And luckily, when I finally worked up the courage to talk to Jerem about it, my husband, because like it had been months and months and months of me just stewing on like, oh, God, I don't know if I can do this. And I was so, so terrified of losing him. I didn't want us to be one of those couples that got divorced because of a faith crisis. Um, And so when I finally worked up the courage to talk to him about it, it was so, 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 so hard. But luckily, he got it. And a year later, both of us were just like, yeah, we out. We're not doing this anymore. And that was super liberating. 
it was really, really great. Like it's, it's something that a lot of people don't have. And I'm really, again, really, really grateful that like Jeremy and I vibe so well <laughs> and that we get along because that would have been much, much, much difficult. It would have been much, much, much harder leaving the church if, if we hadn't been on the same page about it and if we hadn't gotten each other so well. And if we hadn't set that precedent that we talked from the very beginning about what faith meant to us and what we felt about our spirituality. And so <laughs> then we had the experience after we left the church of going through like a second puberty, I think is what a lot of uh, sociologists or like therapists call it. Cause like our first puberty was all through like, it's, it's that chance where you, you, you push boundaries, you test rules, you experiment with drugs and alcohol, you experiment sexually. And we didn't really have a ton of that growing up because you were clamped down by Mormonism. And now that that was gone, we had this chance to do all that stuff again. <laughs> so like, I remember one day, like Jerem was like, oh yeah, like a friend of ours who drank left a, left like a, like a cider in our fridge and Jerem drank it. And oh my God, like, uh, and I remember being like at the time so crushed and disappointed because even though we weren't Mormon anymore, I was so afraid of alcohol still, still. And so I was like, oh no, how could you do this? This is horrible. And what does this mean? We're all going to be alcoholics and addicted. And what's, what's going to happen to us? And like, even still not being Mormon, like the Mormon brainwashing had like still like still it's hard to get rid of, right? It's hard to heal from. And so I just remember that. And I look back on that and laugh and laugh and laugh to myself. That, uh, oh, I was we so all had moments like that. Oh, yeah. yes, for sure. For sure. And then like, and so we, we got to experience that. And at the same time, at while we were, you know, experience, experimenting with all these different th things that we hadn't been allowed to do before, we were also dealing with the grief of, leaving a religion right like even if it's for the best it's still a loss the loss of a belief system is so so difficult even if that belief system is horseshit right yeah. so we vacillated between like you know like being sad and being so angry and then just being sad again and then thinking oh well maybe you can still make it work if we take some parts of Mormonism and keep it with us and we try to bargain with it, you know, like all of those stages of grief, we just went through a lot. But anger was the one I think that is that that Mormons love to focus on when it comes to leaving the church. They love to focus on the anger of ex-Mormons, right? Because anger in Mormonism is seen as such a negative thing. One thing that Mormonism is just so, so, so good at is just you aren't allowed to feel anything negative at all, ever, 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 right? Yeah, all of those are sins. So you're not allowed to feel like sad or any or anything that would make you feel sad or angry or depressed usually is is taught to be a direct consequence of your actions. Right. So if you do good things, good things happen to you and you feel good. If you sin and do bad things, you feel bad and bad things happen to you. So the anger of ex-Mormons can be weaponized against them, even though. Anger in and of itself is such a useful tool if harnessed correctly, right? Anger is a great way of letting people know what you will and will not stand for, what your boundaries are. But if you allow yourself to be consumed by it, that can be definitely dangerous and Mormons 
love to focus on that. They love to focus on the people who have stayed with anger and they love to use it as a tool to justify them still being Mormon and the harm that they actively do against ex-Mormons, which I think is really dangerous. So personally for myself, I stayed with anger for a long time. There were years and years and years of my life after I was Mormon where I was so angry at the church and I was angry at the prophets. I was angry at the leaders. I was even angry at like the Mormons that were around me because they were a reminder of all of this oppression, all of this suffering that I had had to deal with without any sort of recourse, no no closure, right? Because one thing that I have also noticed as I've looked back on my life being Mormon is how easy it is you can oppress someone and be racist to that person when you teach them that fighting back isn't an option. Mormons don't like conflict. There's a reason why, you know, Mormons have in pop culture a genuinely a gen generally positive stereotype because we're so nice, right? We're so we don't know how to deal with conflict. We're taught to to turn the other cheek. We are taught to to be submissive. The only the only way that we are allowed to to stand up for ourselves if we're, if we're standing up for our faith. So how racist can you be to someone when you teach them that fighting back isn't an option? Fighting back isn't righteous. Fighting back is a sin. You can do all sorts of terrible things to them because to do the opposite is to sin and you can't argue with the word of God. And so I've had, I sat with that anger for a long time and, and, and it almost became it almost became toxic. It almost, it almost turned me into someone that I didn't want to be. And it wasn't until I actually started studying Buddhism more that I was able to, to let that go. I often think to myself a lot that like that Buddhism is the antidote to Mormonism. It taught me that balance is what we should strive for instead of one over the other because something about mormon like mormonism and in, in, in general and in general christianity can't be very sustainable to me because they push sin away back so vehemently and they push negative things back so vehemently you're not necessarily allowed to explore or understand those even though that's just a part of being human and it's a part of being alive it wasn't until i started reading more about Buddhism where I was taught balance and where I was taught that those negative emotions, that suffering doesn't need to be rejected. It needs to be acknowledged and it needs to be held and it needs to be understood and listened to in order for it to teach you, to nourish you, and then to transform into something that is beneficial to you. So it wasn't so I credit Buddhist philosophy to help get me out of that anger and to keep stewing in letting my letting my role as a victim not overcome me because that can happen a lot to people and groups that are oppressed. You, you can be stuck in victimhood where there is no power. But if you allow yourself to. And, and I'm not going to say the word forgive, 
because that's not what it is. But if you allow yourself to even just acknowledge and recognize and confront that and look at it with clearer eyes, it allows you to rise up from that and have and give you the empowerment to live without being burdened by being burdened by what makes you a victim, right? It allows you to to rise up from it, to learn from it, and to not be trapped by it. It allows you to grow. So that has kind of been what my journey has been. It honestly has been a long time since I have thought about Mormonism. There are days now where, how old am I? 31? No, 32. I'm 32 now. And there are days that go by where I don't think about my Mormon upbringing at all. There are days where I don't think about how my life used to be completely dictated by Mormonism. Every decision I made, every thought that I was allowed to have was all controlled by Mormonism. And now I don't have that anymore. I'm free to think however I want. I'm free to to live however I want. And that probably wouldn't have happened if I would have stayed kind of just ruminating on how much Mormonism has hurt me. I will not say that you shouldn't do that. You should very much be angry. You should very much be angry at what the church has done, but don't let them have control over your life anymore in terms of how you live it, right? If that makes sense. I think a righteous anger is so, so important. We, do, we should not gloss that over, but to the extent only that it still gives you value. If it keeps you from being the person that you truly want to be, then try to look at that anger that you have towards Mormonism in terms of not how it has kept you down, but in terms of now from that experience, how will you rise from those ashes? How will you become stronger for it? What will you do with this experience of Mormonism trampling you and keeping you so down to empower others? And this podcast is a very, very good example of that. It is taking that righteous anger and the knowledge that you have and giving it to people in a, in a way that we didn't have before. So kudos to wow. you guys for giving this platform for people like myself who want to be able to, how our experiences mean something. What does this, what, what do these horrible things that Mormonism teaches and does, what, what value does it have if we can't? learn and grow from it and connect with each other from it. So in many ways, thank you, Mormonism. <laughs> well, thank me, you like... for saying that, like for <laughs> those kind words. That's very nice to hear. And obviously thank you for sharing your experience and your journey and educating all the listeners, but especially me and Katie. Like I feel like I've learned so much during this episode. So I just want to say thank you. Thanks for saying that. Again, I do feel like I just talked a lot. <laughs> yeah, but it was things that needed to be said and things that I'm like, wow, I I wish I had a notepad during this episode to just like write down everything and really learn from it. I mean, I, of course, I did not write down things, but now I'm like, damn it, I wish I did. Um, but thank God we have this, you know, recording so I can mm-hmm. just go back and listen at any time. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I don't know, like, again, I feel like I talked a lot and I was all over the place, but um, is there anything else that you guys kind of want to know or want to hear about? I think right now I'm still just digesting everything and in a <laughs> state of like, wow, that was so good and so informative and just incredible. So I don't have any other follow-up questions. I mean, I think everyone that I had you answered anyways before, because I was like thinking of a list I could ask at the end, but you eventually answered almost all of them or all of them. Yeah. So if I <laughs> think of any of them, I definitely will, or we can have a follow-up episode, but um, sure, yeah. Yeah. Whatever you need. Yeah. I think it was great. Katie. I can't really hear you. Is it just my side? No, I couldn't really hear anything either. Katie, Uh-oh. if you need help, blink twice. <laughs> no, it's like very, like, you're super far away. Oh, can you hear me better now? Yeah. yeah. Okay, sorry. I don't know what's going on with my microphone, but I That's agree with better. everything Sarah said. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, but thank you so much for being here and doing this. Yeah, thank you for having me. Again, it does feel kind of weird because I just yeah, just talked the whole time. <laughs> so I feel like, I don't know, like, it, it's very much, if you guys do have questions or if you have insights, I, like, I very much want to hear, like, what you guys have to say. So... <laughs> yeah, yeah, but we really wanted this episode to just be your platform like to to speak from your point of view you know like they hear from us enough we're two white women who don't have any experience with this or relatable so just want to be like yeah you tell your story but really we just want to talk over you and yeah. ask all the things and tell you this. um so definitely I mean, like, not the case we wanted to to have this as a an episode solely where you're you're ex- you know ex- sharing your experiences and using this platform to get this information out there for people who don't know, like me, who didn't, you know, this episode was very eye-opening and something that I'm like, wow, I have so much more I need to educate myself on and become more aware of. And so it was very much exactly how I I imagined the episode would go. So thank you for talking and for (laughs) being vulnerable and for sharing your story and for yeah being uh, you know being this is an episode that we hope will resonate with a lot of listeners and be just as informative and um, helpful as it was for us Mm, thank you so much thank you for giving me this opportunity I appreciate it of course um yeah I think that's that's it big thank you again and uh hope to chat soon and otherwise Mm -hmm. everyone have a great week have a great week